You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. because of Rod Serling's military experience and his brother's experience in aviation too, the Twilight Zone has always had a regular focus on the skies. King 9 will not return, the Odyssey of Flight 33 and Nightmare at 20,000 feet show that it's the perfect setting for the Twilight Zone, because while we can navigate the skies effectively these days, We are never truly in control, and when things go wrong, they go wrong, and we don't always find out why. But if we do a little research, we find out that stories from the sea can be just as strange. In 1931, the SS Pachimo was trapped in an ice drift after an unexpected storm near Alaska. In such dangerous conditions, the captain and crew made the decision that they would abandon ship and take shelter on land until the storm passed. But they wouldn't return until almost a month later, and when they did, the ship had broken free. Now of course their initial thoughts were that the ship had sunk, but they were wrong. The truth is, there were still regular sightings of the SS Pachimo in Alaskan waters after she broke free of that ice drift. And the last sighting was in 1969, 38 years after she was abandoned by her crew. But eerie maritime tales are not necessarily confined to the previous centuries. As recently as 2010, the Loyabov Olova was being towed after being decommissioned. On the way to the Dominican Republic, she broke free of her tow. Now presuming that the ship would sink, she was just left alone. But she didn't sink. Now the Canadian authorities took control of the Orlova in 2013 and let her go in international waters when they didn't perceive her to be a threat to offshore oil installations and his solitary journey continued. Although perhaps she wasn't quite solitary anymore because the ship became infested with disease-ridden rats who after consuming any remaining food on there then turned on each other. In 2014, the Orlova had travelled all the way to British coastal waters and being a ship of great size, panic ensued as authorities desperately tried to predict where she would end up. But in February and March of that year, from this deserted and rat-infested ship came two distress signals. Had some poor soul been stranded alone and starving on the Orlova, desperately trying to escape being the rat's next meal, Well, not quite. The distress signals were simply an automated signal that becomes activated when the ship begins to take on water. Or at least I hope they were. But please don't let those stories alarm you because tonight we're boarding a US naval destroyer in the South Pacific and thankfully it has a strong captain and an experienced crew. Although when one of the whaling boats wasn't secured properly in rough weather, it did result in some damage, which the chief boatswain's mate, Chief Bell, is getting a dressing down for. Now last night we had a bad swell. That boat should have been rigged in. Instead it was left swung out. As a result, she's 80% damaged and filled up like a swimming pool. 
We had nine hours warning of that storm, Bell. This ship should have been 100% prepared. Instead, it wasn't, and I want to know why. I did the best I could, sir. I... I've been feeling up to par. Well, did you report to sick bay? No, sir, I... I didn't report to, uh... to, uh, to sick bay, sir. Now, look, Chief. I'm not in business to pistol whip my crew. I want a tight ship, that's true. But I happen to care very much if one of my sailors has a problem and can't function because of it. A mere oversight, I'm sure. And I'm positive that our voyage will pass without incident and we'll reach our destination safe and sound. Or maybe... We're heading straight for a 30-fathom grave. Incident 100 miles off the coast of Guadalcanal, time the present. The United States Naval Destroyer on what has been a most uneventful cruise. In a moment, they're going to send a man down 30 fathoms and check on a noisemaker, someone or something tapping on metal. You may or may not read the results in a naval report, because Captain Beecham and his crew have just set a course that will lead this ship and everyone on it into the twilight zone. First broadcast on the 10th of January 1963, written by Rod Sailing and directed by Perry Lafferty. So another directorial outing for Perry Lafferty, who also directed In His Image, and the next episode of season four after this one is also directed by Perry Lafferty. But then that's it, he doesn't direct any more episodes of the twilight zone. So our opening narration, it's fine. We spoke about why these are the way they are in the last episode with Rod sailing in front of the curtain instead of in the scene. So there's no point complaining about it. It is how it is. So we have to accept it and move on. Now before the opening narration, we listen to part of a scene where Captain Beecham, played by Simon Oakland, is having some strong words with Chief Bell, who is played by Mike Kellen. Now, I really like this as a little character moment for Captain Beecham especially, because these are military men, they need to get things right, or the safety of the crew could be at risk. So quite rightly, he's giving Chief Bell a dressing down for not tying a boat down properly. But then, Bell says that he hadn't been feeling well lately, and Beecham just immediately, without hesitation, stops the telling off, and asks whether he's okay. Has he been to sick bay? So this just felt very sailing to me. You know, it could be that he had commanding officers like this, but I think it's also that he was a man that understood that strong leadership should also include compassion. The two things aren't mutually exclusive. Now we do have quite a large cast here and I won't talk about them all, but of course we have to mention our captain Captain Beecham, and he is played by Simon Oakland, who is completely believable as a disciplined military man. And he was born in 1915 in New York with 161 credits to his name, his hard-working actor status is assured. And we've seen him before in the Twilight Zone playing De Cruz in the Rip Van Winkle caper. And he has this very hard carved out of stone exterior that makes him perfect for certain types of role. But he didn't actually hit the screens until he was about 35 years old in 1950, but he had paid his dues as a performer because he was a concert violinist and then hit the Broadway stage as an actor. And when he hit the screen, he really did become a hardworking actor. So because of this very stern persona that he had, he would sometimes be cast as villains but more often than not, he was a cop or a military man. And there's a moment here that I think really makes a lot of sense when we consider that this is a ghost story, but these are military men. Mr. Smith? Captain? I want you to stay grafted to me, Lieutenant. I may have to be turning in a report that'll stick me on a garbage barge or in a Navy hospital. I want 15 witnesses in my hearing and all on my side. Could be a sub, sir, and we could be hearing it. 
It's only about 30 fathoms. Sure, it could be a sub, mister. That's probably what it is. But what about this sub? Has it got two arms and a fist? Somebody's making that noise down there. It just makes so much sense to me that he would say something like that because this isn't a ghost story set in an old English village with superstitious locals. These are military men on a ship and rightly or wrongly, I think there is a certain expectation for them to be grounded and level-headed and not prone to flights of fancy. So it's like the pilot who sees a flying saucer. Do they tell it like it is and risk ridicule or people thinking that they're mad, or do they keep their mouth shut and play it down? So I think that's a nice moment where Rod Sailing kind of addresses that early on. Before we move on with our story though, let's take a moment to look at our surroundings because I don't think you can get any more authentic than what we get here. Because of course it is filmed on a real ship, but to film on a genuine US naval ship meant jumping through a few hoops with the Navy themselves. And Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. So this was advantageous in a couple of ways because the Navy could provide various pieces of information and Martin Grams Jr. says a frogman or scuba diver could not talk back and forth to the ship and the deepest they were allowed to go by Navy regulations was 135 feet except in extreme emergency when they could drop to 190 but not for more than five minutes. So Sailing had put a frogman or scuba diver in his initial script, which he changed to one of the hard helmet canvas suit style of divers, because this would give the diver the 30 fathoms that they would need, and they were also able to talk back and forth to the ship. And when the captain decides to send this diver down to the sunken submarine to find out what the noise is, there seems to be this radio or tannoy communication that says a diver is going over the starboard side. Now diver going over the starboard side. Now I can't find anything to say that this is the case, but it certainly sounded like a Rod Sailing's voice on that communication. So a little cameo appearance perhaps? Maybe. So then we are treated to the first of three diving scenes in the episode. So as we've said, the ship scenes themselves were filmed on an actual destroyer, but the interiors were set at MGM and the diving scenes were filmed in an underwater tank at Republic Studios. Now I have to say, while season 4 has its detractors, they certainly weren't slowing down in terms of production quality. When they wanted to go big, they went big. And the ship looks great, these underwater scenes look great, and it could have been one of those things where they put in a bit of stock footage and just had most of the dialogue up above, but they didn't. They went to Republic Studios and they filmed these scenes. And I don't think there's much that differentiates the look of this episode in terms of the, the quality of this setting with an actual war movie being made. They really went all out to make this one authentic. McClure, what's the condition? Conning tower hatch is all bent, sir. I can't move the wheel. This whole deck appears to have been scraped. Whoever she is, sir, she must have really caught it. Now say again, McClure. She must have what? Caught it, sir. The whole deck is pockmarked with shell damage, machine gun damage, too. Was well, that you, McClure? No, sir. It's coming from inside the hull. All right, answer right away, McClure. Answer right now. So the mystery deepens, but while we are on the subject of authenticity, imagine trying to say all of this if you've never had to say it before. Radio and bridge. Radio I. Captain wants a message. Action to Com 7th Fleet. Info sync pack fleet. Have located sunken sub. Position latitude 093000 south. Longitude 160-4800 east. Request confirm location of all known sinkings this area. Will remain this area until further advised. 
President's operational immediate. Radio I. So the actor who plays Lieutenant Smith and has to wrestle with that dialogue is Bill Bixby, and he actually had to read that from off screen on a piece of paper because it was so technical, it was difficult for him to recall and say it properly. And I think if you know that, you can see it on the screen because he is having those little looks off camera, but at the same time, he sells it very well. And like I said, this is the great Bill Bixby, and he's an actor who actually means a great deal to me, and it is, of course, because of the Incredible Hulk. Because back in the 80s, we weren't in such a superhero-saturated time like we are now, so we had to get our superhero fix any way we could. And one of the only shows that was doing it was The Incredible Hulk, in which Bill Bixby played David Banner. And it's a funny thing because superhero films are taken quite seriously now. When they're making billions of dollars, you can't not take them seriously. But it wasn't always the case, but The Incredible Hulk was a hit TV show. It was the number one TV show in America for a while, and I just loved it. And yes, as a child, I loved those Luferino doing his Hulk thing parts, but at the center of it, grounding it all, was Bill Bixby, with not a trace of irony or tongue-in-cheek. He was so committed to that part, and he played a tortured soul better than anyone. He took the material seriously, and he raised it because of that. But here he's absolutely fine. We're not really getting much of a range because he's not given much of a range to play with. It's a small role, so it is what it is. But Bill Bixby, what a legend, taken from us far too soon. So the diver has been down to the bottom and he's now ready to give his report to the captain. There is somebody inside her, sir. I'll lay odds on that. What about the sub itself? Could you judge her length? Oh, I'd guess her to be 300 feet, sir, with a 25-foot beam. She sounds like one of ours. She looks like one of ours. There were ballast tanks and uh, flooding ports on the underside. She's moving, sir. That was the other thing, Captain. She wasn't stuck in tight. Deep, yes, but not tight. She seemed to be swaying when I was down there. Are you cold, McClure? <laughs> I've been warmer, sir. And you will be again. But right now you're going to get colder. Get yourself some coffee and go back down. I want you to check her bow. She may have pulled herself loose and you can read the number. So no sooner has the diver come up than he's sent down again. And this kind of ties in with a topic that I want to discuss. So let's remember that for later on. Right now, I'd like to tackle the plot thread about Chief Bell, and I guess we'll contain it here. It's threaded throughout the episode, but it is kind of a story in and of itself as well. And Chief Bell is played by Mike Kellen, and he's an actor probably a lot of us will recognize from something. And his plot is kind of bubbling away in the background, and we return to it every now and then while he's in sickbay. And Chief Bell's troubles began when the ship came into the vicinity of the sunken submarine, and that's when he starts to come over all strange. Now in World War II, the actor Mike Kellen was actually in the Navy, and if my sparse knowledge of American naval rank structure is correct, in real life he'd likely have been the one giving out more orders than he actually got because he attained the rank of Lieutenant Commander, which is only two ranks below the captain. And Mike was born in Connecticut, and after being discharged from the Navy, he went to the Yale School of Drama, and like the Twilight Zone's first leading man, Earl Holliman, he made his screen debut in a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis movie called At War With The Army in 1950. So he did all of the same shows as our usual hard-working actors, but there are a couple of notable highlights in his career too. He was in the multi-Oscar-winning movie Midnight Express in 1979, and I believe he was actually nominated but didn't win. He was also in Neil Diamond's The Jazz Singer in 1980, and then his last film was the slasher movie Sleepaway Camp 
1983, so his brush with Oscar's success didn't stop him taking a job either. But sadly, 1983 was the year that he passed away too at the young age of 61, three days before Simon Oakland, who played Captain Beecham. Now I will admit, I cannot tell whether his performance sees him going convincingly insane or completely over the top, or maybe a bit of both. Now, Mike Kellen had this very nasally and raspy type of delivery. That was just the voice he had, and it was a bit of a trademark for him to a degree. But while he's speaking in this episode, he has these very long scenes where he's hesitantly delivering his lines in a very piecemeal way. And especially with the cleaned-up Blu-ray audio, we seem to get a lot of mouth noise on the track, which is a little uncomfortable to listen to at times. But that's not his fault, it's just the way it was. So the jury is still out for me with Mike Kellen, but the character is certainly very important to the script itself. We were on the surface. It it was night. I was a... I was a signalman then. I was supposed to... Put an infrared filter uh, on the uh, on the uh, signal light. Otherwise, the uh, chaps would have seen us. They would have seen the light. They would have found us. I understand. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I uh, I, I dropped the uh, signal light. The infrared filter fell off. They were waiting for us out there, the trap destroyers. They saw our light. They let us have it. Could we have had the story without this character? I think we probably could. The ship could have just came across the sunken submarine and the banging starts. And hey presto, there's your episode. What's this banging about? It's a creepy sunken submarine, and that's all there is to it. But it certainly would have made it a much thinner tale. I do like that it's Belle's presence here that is likely causing all of this. Now, like several other Rod Sailing characters, he has that survivor's guilt. Any other vessel might have just passed over the submarine without incident. But Bell made a mistake that may have caused the death of the whole crew. So when he passes over it, they make themselves known. It's like they're saying, you should be down here with us. And in the end, he is. He jumps into the water and that's the last we see of him. But it was almost the case that things ended quite differently for Bell. And Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. He said that in the ending that was almost used, Bell disappeared into thin air and the solution to the mystery revealed that he was a ghost. After the producer Hirschman read the script, he told Sailing that the ending should revert to the original teleplay. He said, I believe making Bell a ghost throughout will mystify and confuse the audience. I am certain that we would be best off to go back to a version of the Bell story as in the original script, that somehow, in a scared funk, he got out and away, perhaps leaving his buddies when he might have helped them. He should have died, and the dead want him with them, and he joins them at the bottom of the ocean. So I think this is a case where Hirschman was absolutely right on the money and gave Sailing some good advice, because... Having Bell be a ghost throughout would have just raised too many questions. These are sailors, at some point they would have had to meet Bell. At some point he would have been giving a posting there. It's one thing for a ghost to turn up on a ship or a sunken submarine, but to have one actually living his life in the Navy alongside his colleagues would have been maybe taking it a bit too far. Now, I had hoped not to just keep coming back episode after episode to discuss the running time in season 4 and asking whether each episode justifies its running time. I think I might 
be a little naive to think that it's not going to be an ongoing topic. I think we've all had it before where there is a kind of received wisdom or an overall perception of something. And then when you experience it yourself, you either agree with that perception or you wonder what everyone else is talking about. So coming into season four where there is this very definite widespread opinion that the episodes are too long and padded out, you hope it's going to be one of those cases where you experience it yourself and wonder what everyone else is talking about because you actually think they're just fine. And the first episode of the season in his image I found was quite a pleasant surprise. It ticked along at a decent pace, it filled its running time well and it gave me hope for the season going forward. But I have to say, on my first watch of the 30 Fathom Grave, I feared that I could actually see what everyone seemed to be talking about. It did feel unnecessarily long. And then add to that the fact that Sailing actually wrote this originally as a half hour script, ready for season 4, before they knew they were going to be filling hour long slots, and you can see that why when people say season 4 episodes seem like extended half hour ones, in this case, it's actually true. But the length of it wasn't my only issue with it on that first watch, because a story like this needs atmosphere and tension, and the thing is, it looks great. The use of the actual ship and the underwater scenes means it looks great, it looks authentic and it's well photographed. But contrast it with something like Judgment Night from the first season. In that episode, it's night time. The ship is blacked out to stop it being seen by the enemy. It's a perfect setup for an eerie encounter. But here, everything is in broad daylight. And on top of that, there's this very clinical clean backdrop of the ship itself which especially when you're watching it on a cleaned up blu-ray just is very very bright it doesn't seem like a good setting for a creepy tale and the idea of this unexplainable noise in itself is quite creepy but we are exposed to it for 45 minutes so it's a tough sell and it does begin to lose its impact Mark Zickry in the Twilight Zone Companion says, Executed as a half-hour show, the 30 Fathom Grave might have been effectively eerie in the tradition of Judgment Night, but an hour is impossibly padded. Rather than having the story develop at a normal pace, each piece of information is revealed with all the urgency of sap dripping from a tree. And Variety Magazine at the time seemed to agree. They said the yarn was so thin that the hour had to be heavily padded with inconsequential naval routine. There was less progression to the drama than repetition of incidents until the climactic suggestion that the banging might not have been made by men more than 20 years dead. The nervous breakdown of the mate was the pretext for some hokey psychologizing that piled artificiality onto incredibility. So where the critics are concerned, things certainly don't look good for the 30 Fathom Grave. And on my first watch, I really did feel that running time. But you know, strangely, after I knew what the twist was, and I returned for a second viewing, it didn't seem as long to me. It certainly was still long. But I think it's a case of getting out of the mindset of what we've been exposed to for the previous three years and just allowing the Twilight Zone to have a different shape. Like viewing it as a short Twilight Zone movie rather than a long Twilight Zone episode. You know, granted, there are several scenes here that you could cut out. And like Mark Zickry says in The Twilight Zone Companion, the diver goes up and down so many times that they might as well have put him on a piece of elastic. But once you settle into a different rhythm, I think there is some good stuff in this episode. Now make no bones about it, I think it would have made a better short episode than a long one. But I guess we have a choice. 
we can either let that be a weight around the neck of the episode that drags it down to its own 30 fathom grave, or we can acknowledge it and move on and look for what does work. And I do think that once the episode settles in, there are some things that work okay. It would have made a better short episode, but it doesn't mean it makes a bad long one. But where I do think it drops the ball is the ending. You know, finally we have this great creepy location, a sunken submarine. It's underwater, it has these air pockets in it, it's rusted, it's dirty, and it's atmospheric. But we're there for about 30 seconds. And then we get the payoff. It was a wrecking side, sir, and nobody had a chance. Nobody? Nobody, sir. The periscope shears had been cut in half, and one whole section was just hanging there, swinging back and forth. That was making the noise, then. That was making the noise, wasn't it? I guess so, sir. But, but what? There were eight men in the control room. Eight men or what was left of them, and... One of them... One of them had a hammer in his hand. Now I think the actor John Considine does really well in this scene. He has these big, bright, expressive eyes and he conveys the fear very well. But we have 40 minutes of build-up and then we are only told about the dead crewman on the submarine who is holding a hammer. It feels like an anticlimax. Now I know we're in a different time and perhaps they couldn't show the rotted remains of a submarine crewman holding the hammer but surely there must have been things that they could have done here. Build some suspense by having them search this location for a couple of minutes and when they get to the bridge have them discover the periscope that had been swinging and banging and just having that moment of relief. But then, close up of the crewman on the floor, maybe have him in a jumpsuit and gloves so you don't have to show the skeleton. Or at least show him and maybe he's been banging on the door with a hammer that has been locked for whatever reason and well don't those marks on the door look fresh and the sad thing is i think sailing realized it needed that payoff too because as originally scripted we were going to see the skeletons of the deceased but he was told by someone in the production showing the skeletons is very distasteful and I do not know what we could show, because these skeletons would not be the clean bleached bones of a body in a desert, and I'm sure we cannot portray clearly a mess of pulp. So Rod Serling revised it. So I'm all for a more suggestive and less explicit brand of horror, where your mind conjures up the horrors rather than being shown them. But sometimes a story needs a payoff, and I think this is one of those cases. So as we close out our second episode of season 4, it's sad that we haven't quite hit the heights of what the Twilight Zone can do yet with that lengthier running time. And while the episode does have problems, I don't think they're the kind of problems that just kill it dead completely. For me they're the kind of problems that you can acknowledge, accept that they're there and move on and get some enjoyment from what's left. So while it might not be the best of the Twilight Zone, it's certainly not one to consign to its own 30 fathom grave. Small naval engagement. The month of April 1963. Not to be found in any historical annals. Look for this one filed under H for haunting in the Twilight Zone. Okay, a couple of pieces of news before we get to listener feedback in this episode. Now, the first thing is, a couple of years ago now, uh, the Twilight Zone podcast was nominated for the first time for a Rondo Award in the category of Best Multimedia Site. And 
to my surprise, to everyone's surprise, I thought we were the underdog, but you, the audience, came together and we won that award, which was great. Now, I kind of said that I was happy with that. I didn't really need to win another one, but then last year, because it was the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone and I knew I was going to Binghamton for the 60th, I thought it would be great to take another award to Binghamton because we were nominated again in the 60th year. Now, we didn't win last year, but we came runner-up, um, which is great. I still think that's a great achievement in such a hotly contested category as this one is because there are some big names, some big podcasts in that category. Um, now, this year we've been nominated again and... I can only say thank you to whoever nominated the Twilight Zone podcast again. People can nominate their own podcast in that category. That's not really my style. It's not something I would do. I, personally, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if I was to win an award, I feel that that should come from elsewhere. So I want to thank whoever nominated the Twilight Zone podcast again. Now, I'm not going to campaign hard for it. I'm not going to put out special episodes asking for votes and that kind of thing like I have done in the past. So if you want to vote for the Twilight Zone podcast, then all you need to do to vote is to put your name in an email to taraco at aol.com. That's T-A-R-A-C-O at aol.com. So for example, I would put, Hi, my name is Tom Elliott. Please cast my vote in the category of best multimedia site for the Twilight Zone podcast at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. And it's as easy as that. And if you want to just copy and paste something, then go to thetwilightzonepodcast.com slash Rondo and the details are there. So like I said, I'm not going to campaign hard for it and that's not because I don't want to win it, but... We have won it before. It would be nice to win it again, but I do feel like it's mission accomplished. But if you do have a spare few minutes to cast your vote, then please do. It would be nice to win it again. And I think technically winning it this year would be for the previous year's content, which was the 60th anniversary. So I suppose technically it would be for the Twilight Zone 60th. And I think last year was arguably the best year we've had for content on the podcast. So I definitely think, you know, from our perspective, it really would be great. But I'm not going to campaign hard. I will leave it there. And if you want to get your votes in, please get them in by the 29th of March. And that would be great. Now, the other piece of big news is I mentioned Sailing Fest. And Sailing Fest is happening again this year. The dates are now officially out and they are August the 28th, 29th and 30th and it takes place in Binghamton, New York. And if you listen to my coverage of it last year, hopefully you got a bit of a flavour of that. It was really one of the best times I've ever had. It was fabulous. I would love to go again this year and I'm going to try my best to do it. Um... Those dates are a bit tricky for international travel because it's like the summer season, I guess. Everything does cost a bit more, but I'm going to hopefully be able to pull something together and make it over to Binghamton again. But we'll see. I will let you all know. I met a lot of you last time. We had a great time, but there's more friends that I would like to meet. So let's hope that will happen. So before I pass over to the listeners, I would just like to thank Peter Ward and John Arnold for jumping aboard the Patreon and supporting the podcast. That is patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And it's going to be all change over there in the uh, relatively near future, and I will let everyone know what that's going to be. But, you know, it's good to shake things up sometimes, shake the content up, or even just rearrange it in some way, which is what I'm planning to do. So we're going to go to the listener feedback now and this is still a relatively new way of doing things because I've switched things up. Basically, if you want to get your thoughts in about the next show, then try and get them in between one to two weeks after I talk about the current show. So this week we talked about the 30 Fathom Grave. If you want to get some thoughts in on a clip, then send them one to two weeks 
after this show has been released. But if there's some overlap, that's okay. I'll just play it in the next episode. And what I've started to do is put these at the end of the episode because I know some people really enjoy the listener part of it and some people it's not really for them. So I do my review, I do the news and any announcements and then I pass over to the listeners. And if you want to stick around, you can. Or if you want to take your leave and join us in the next episode, then you can too. Okay, so that's enough for me. Let's hand over to the listeners to talk about In His Image and the 30 Fathom Grave. Hi Tom, Al here. You know the situation I'm in right now. The podcast studio undergoing major renovation. I'm stuck in a room with a loud air handler and construction sounds in the background. So I wouldn't even bother to send you a recording about the first episode of season four, except that it's in his image which is the first Twilight Zone episode I've ever seen. Or a piece of it is the first piece of Twilight Zone I've ever seen. You know my story by now, but I think I'm going to tell it again. Because when else can I tell it? I just finished listening to your two wonderful podcasts, wrapping up season three and your interview with Earl Holloman. It was in the season three podcast that I learned that Carol Serling had died, which broke my heart because she's not only been carrying on Rod's legacy all this time, but I remember her so well from the pages of the Twilight Zone magazine, where I almost felt like I knew her. And it struck me that your podcast is not only a wonderful taste of Twilight Zone history, but it's also become a community where you can learn sad news like that, which I may not otherwise have known. And then to hear Earl Holloman, that was so great. But face it, Tom, that has to be the easiest interview you ever had to do. You just set Earl off, and off he went, and he told one fabulous story after another. It was at the end of that one that you announced officially that you were looking for sound clips for In His Image. And I thought, how can I not tell the story again? Maybe slower and longer this time. So it was probably January 3rd, 1963, though I didn't check to see if In His Image was repeated. I was five years old, and my dad and I were going to have a night together, just the two men away from the women. I have three sisters. In what we thought of as a campout, but which took place in the basement of our home. Down there was our TV, which I think was probably a black and white TV at that time, and a couch with a hideaway bed. And we spent the evening down there, just the two of us. My mom would come down and bring us snacks, watching TV, having a good old time. And since I was five years old, I didn't last that long. And I fell asleep. At some point, I woke up. I noticed that the TV was still on. I looked over at my dad. He was sitting there, his back up against the back of the couch, his legs stretched out. And he was calmly watching a show while he was smoking a cigarette. I looked over at the TV to see what he was watching. And on the TV, I saw this guy running through the woods and something happened so that he cut his wrist and he looked down at his wrist, peeled back the skin, and instead of flesh and blood, there were electronic circuits. Well, that was enough for me. That scared the hell out of me. I went diving back under the covers, not to peek out again for the rest of the show. But I remember thinking, as I dove back under the covers, how amazing it was that my dad could sit there so calmly smoking a cigarette and watch that and not be affected by it at all. So I think this is one of my earliest memories, period, but certainly one of my earliest memories of my dad where I felt really proud of him and felt like he was strong and a protector. So it's a very warm memory of my dad. Later that same year, I have another memory with my dad. I was up on his shoulders so I could see the riderless horse and the caisson carrying the casket of President John F. Kennedy as it went through the streets of Washington, D.C. And these are very warm memories of my dad, which I still have and which I cherish since he passed away in 2014. Anyway, I don't know why I knew that was a Twilight Zone, but I was pretty certain it was a Twilight Zone. And I became a big Twilight Zone fan as a kid throughout the 60s. They showed them in repeats, I think on WTTG Channel 5 in Washington, D.C. 
and I think they were on in the afternoons. So we would come home after school, turn on a Twilight Zone, after that go out and play. And I kept expecting at some point that I would see the episode with the guy who had printed circuits under his skin, but I never did. And I would ask friends about it. We were all Twilight Zone fanatics, and none of them had seen it either. So we started to think that maybe it wasn't a Twilight Zone, or maybe I'd made the whole thing up. Because it got to the point, I was pretty certain I had seen all the Twilight Zones. Little did I know. So I sort of forgot about it, but my friends and I remained Rod Serling fans. We were all excited when Night Gallery came out. I was still too young to stay up to watch Night Gallery, but we used to have this portable TV on a TV stand with wheels that we kept upstairs, and people would wheel it around from one room to the other if they wanted to watch some TV when they were in their bedroom. I would always make sure that that TV was in my bedroom the night of Night Gallery, and I was supposed to be asleep but when Night Gallery would come on, I would turn on the TV very close to my bed, turn the volume way down low so only I could hear it, I thought, and lie in my bed and watch Night Gallery. I thought my parents didn't know what was going on, but I suspect they probably did. And then the next day, waiting for the bus to go to school, I would stand out there with my friends and we would discuss the Night Gallery episodes. When I was a teenager, I spent two years as what they called an intern that was a boarder at the International School of Geneva in Switzerland. There was an auberge across the street where the students would go over on the weekends and drink. We were 15, 16, 17 years old. They didn't care. And every so often, as we got into our drink, we would talk Twilight Zone. This was primarily expatriate Americans, but it wasn't entirely Americans. So there were people from other countries that knew the Twilight Zone too. And we would sit around and we would tell Twilight Zone episodes including spoiling them with the twist. That's how I first discovered that I had never seen a stop at Willoughby or the silence, in spite of all the repeats I had seen through the 60s, because both of those episodes were spoiled for me. And we had this phrase that we used to talk about each episode of The Twilight Zone, or the main character of The Twilight Zone. We would say, is he a one-wayer or a round-tripper? One-wayers being people like Barbara Jean Trenton in the 16-millimeter shrine, and round-trippers are people like Martin Sloan in Walking Distance. At that point, the Twilight Zone hadn't been on for something like 10 years, and it certainly wasn't on in Geneva, Switzerland. But we kept it alive, recounting the stories like that. And then the 80s came around, and it seemed like new Twilight Zones exploded onto the scene. First of all, there was the Twilight Zone magazine in 1981, which I read faithfully, and it had a show-by-show -show guide to the Twilight Zone by Mark Scott Secree that eventually became the Twilight Zone companion. But we never knew the order of the episodes. We never knew what season they were from, anything like that. And you started to get a sense of how it all came together by following that show-by-show -show guide. In 1984, there was the Twilight Zone Silver Anniversary Show hosted by Patrick O'Neill, which featured three episodes that we had never seen before. A Short Drink from a Certain Fountain, Sounds and Silences, and Miniature, with the dollhouse scenes colorized. And of course, in 1985 came the new 80s Twilight Zone. But in the middle there, I think in 1982, it was announced that the 18-hour-long Twilight Zones would be shown. They apparently hadn't ever been shown since they were on originally, and most of us didn't even know they existed. As I recall, the only place they were being shown, at least in my area, was on WGN in Chicago, which I got with my cable TV package. Cable didn't have much back then, but it did have WGN, so I was able to watch the Twilight Zones. I was all excited. They advertised them. I don't know how far ahead of time. I knew they were coming. So that first night, I sat down to watch my first hour-long Twilight Zone and they did not show them in the original order of airing. The first episode they showed was the new exhibit. I can't tell you the order after that, though I have this feeling that they showed Death Ship and Jezebel before they ever got to end his image. Anyway, I think it was about halfway through the 18-episode package. Or now that I think about it, perhaps it was a 17-episode package, because I think we had not seen miniature until the Silver Anniversary show. In any event... It was about halfway through the package when I started watching an episode starring George Grizzard, 
didn't think much of it, but at some point I started to get this strange feeling. There was something familiar about it. And then, as we know, I got to that scene. I had talked to people in the 60s about that scene. Nobody had seen it. I talked to friends of mine in Geneva when we recounted Twilight Zone episodes. Nobody had seen it. I had pretty much forgotten about it. And suddenly there it was. It was real. My very first Twilight Zone. And I was watching it again. It can't help but be one of my favorite episodes, right? After that. And I think it is a great episode. So here's to the fourth season of The Twilight Zone. And here's to you, Tom, and what I'm sure will be great Twilight Zone podcast episodes of the fourth season of The Twilight Zone. And here's to In His Image, which, however brief the exposure, first set me on the road to The Twilight Zone and for scaring the living crap out of a five-year-old. That's all from me, Tom. Bye. Hey, what's up, Tom? This is Uncommon NASA, giving you a little bit of audio feedback. I actually meant to get some in before uh, your first episode of Season 4, but slipped, fell behind. So here I am uh, for what is probably, I guess, Season 4's Episode 2 episode from you. So a little stuff about In His Image. Basically, I plan to sort of watch Season 4 along with the show. Uh, with the podcast and uh, I hadn't seen this episode in a while I really only remember the ending part Um, not really much of the build-up and watching it I can kind of see why (laughs) Uh, it's not one that they show a lot in syndication but they do show it occasionally when they're going to fill the 60 minute slot but I do remember the ending I remember the reveal with you know the robot arm and all that kind of stuff I was hoping maybe when I watched it again on fresh eyes that all of a sudden it would jump out and I would like it a lot more than I remembered. And I don't remember disliking it, but um, eh, it didn't really happen. This episode was strange. I guess right from the top, it sort of exemplifies some of the issues that happened with season four in terms of stretching and pacing and and things just not feeling right. Um, even though they had 60 minutes or you know 60 minutes including commercials to present the story, I still felt, especially in the first half, like I wasn't quite sure where I was. There there were just points where I didn't understand when I was in the small town or in the, the professor's town or whatever kind of title that the person that made the robot uh, has. I didn't really understand a lot of that. I mean, I, I got it by the end of the episode, I understood. But like as it was happening, I had like this inkling in the back of my head of like, wait a minute, where are we? What are we talking about? Who knows what, when? So wasn't crazy about that. I guess a couple of cool points that I'll point out um, that I noticed, I just took a couple of notes when I was watching it, is uh, just the idea that like his girlfriend was like living around Times Square and that was a totally normal thing to do in New York City at the time, um, which is awesome. Uh, I, I love that kind of thing. I wish that was still the case in, in my city. Uh, and it's just it was cool to see um i wish they would have gotten more shots from Times square and things like that but i just probably wasn't in the cards for that episode i do want to point out i noticed right away because i'm a huge honeymooners fan i i wrote you about this probably on like the patreon when we're talking a little bit about um art carney is as soon as the the driver pulled up i noticed i was like whoa that's george petrie george petrie um is an actor who didn't do a whole lot that many people are familiar with besides the Honeymooners. And even then, he's sort of a deep cut. Like, he was basically like the fifth Honeymooner because the Honeymooners was about two couples. So George Petrie was basically like the fifth Honeymooner. He was... um, The Honeymooners basically featured two couples living um, in a Brooklyn apartment complex. And George Petrie was kind of like the character actor. He was uh, Ralph Cramden's buddy from work. He was his bowling partner. He was... Um, his boss's assistant, he was an IRS agent, he was a, a lawyer, he just showed up in different costumes and really didn't look that different <laughs> besides an occasional hat or mustache, but it kind of worked uh, somehow. There was another guy that was on that did that too, but nobody nearly as much as George Petrie. But anyway, I wish that he had been in more Twilight Zones or just in more things in general because he's kind of a cool guy and, a, and an interesting footnote in, in TV history. Um, but it was cool to see him show up here, even though he had a really limited role where he just kind of picked up the main character and dropped him off. 
I guess getting to the main character, George Grizzard, well, the actor George Grizzard, I, I hate to like pick on the guy, but he, he is in two Twilight Zones and neither one of them are, are ones that I like at all. And uh, I got to say, he's just one of those actors that I'm not a big fan of. I kind of compare him to almost like a modern day, uh, like a Matt Damon kind of actor where I'm just like, man, there's just something about that guy I do not like. He's always playing characters I don't like. His his vibes are weird to me. And, and those are like super subjective things that you really can't place on the actor. And to some degree, maybe he's really good at playing a heel. And that's why you end up disliking him in an episode like The Chaser. I feel like he's very dislikable. Um, it's one of my least favorite episodes uh, outside of the the library shot where he gets the potions. There's really nothing redeemable about the the episode at all uh, to me. And this episode is pretty similar, uh, except it doesn't even have that one good shot. Uh, it's kind of shot in a very blasé way. There's not a lot of great scenery in this episode. Even the effects with the robot arm. It's fine, um, you know, and and I just I, I can't wrap my head around exactly why I dislike George Grizzard's acting in both of these episodes. But I think in both places he sort of like coldly plays characters that are making really, you know, sort of despicable decisions. But for whatever reason, the direction or the writing doesn't really point that out or call it out to the audience and it makes me feel weird watching it if that makes any sense not a big fan of the episode um i think between the pacing and the acting you know some of the shots with the two george grizzards in the same shot were done pretty sneakily well but it wasn't something that wasn't being done in other places probably at that time and certainly afterwards in terms of doing those quick shots you know there's a little bit of maybe sideways inspiration to like uh jordan peele's us movie in this where you've got those shots that are done really well in that movie i'm not a big fan of the movie us to be honest but um the shots and the acting between the same actors acting off each other are really great in it and to some degree i guess that's pulled off here and, and some of the same messages are pulled off here but uh i don't know i, I kind of just wanted to give feedback because it was the first one not because it was one that particularly inspired me i'll chime in here and there as i watch along with you uh but i won't send something in for every episode obviously but to kick it off i wanted to say something and i did find it interesting just my reaction to seeing it again um i've heard like al's great story about this being one of the first episodes he had seen and not knowing what it was and I think that story might be better than what the episode is for me. Um, I actually find that more more interesting, you know. And it's a shame because Charles Beaumont is probably my favorite writer on on Twilight Zone besides uh, Rod himself. So uh, this episode just didn't work. And um, I think if this is the first season four episode that you're seeing, uh, you'll probably be a little skeptical of some of us that are saying season four has some really great episodes because it does, but this probably isn't one of them for a number of reasons. Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Butte, Texas, talking about 30 Fathom Grave. When I was a young kid, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something like that, and I was first uh, watching Twilight Zone, uh, this is the one of the episodes that I remember uh, from from my my young days, and even as a kid, uh, I can remember thinking, "Oh wow, this is a this is a little bit different." Twilight Zone. It's 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 an hour long instead of half hour long, and even as a kid, uh, I realized, "Huh, you know, I don't think it needed to be an hour long. I don't think they needed to go back and forth to that sub." That many times, even as a kid. Um, however, uh, I, I always uh, I did enjoy it, and, and even watching it now as an adult and just watching it for the recap, uh, I still enjoy uh, the episode. Uh, I think there's a couple reasons why uh, I, I, I enjoy it. Um, first thing that struck me on this watch was uh, the, the set design. Uh, I don't know where they got these sets from, but um, I, I don't know if they actually filmed it on a ship or they have sets set up that way. But, you know, it really gave you a sense of, I don't know, not claustrophobia is not the word, but, you know, the, the tight, the tight 
uh, you know, walkways and small doors and all that stuff. But yeah, the set design was, was great. Um, the, uh, the acting, uh, I thought was uh, really good. You know, uh, all, all the, you know, I, I like the technical jargon that I guess the, the script, you know, that, that Rod, I assume pulled off of, of, you know, personal experience. Um, but it's just very snappy, just very, you know, I'm assuming that's how people talked and gave orders and directions and all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> but the, uh, the sound design, uh, of the banging, um, again, that was something that I just always remembered as a kid and just, I don't know, just the way they did it. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, rhythmic. It was kind of off and, you know, kind of fast, kind of slow, um, I don't know. They never really explained how all the crew could hear it. It would be one thing if you know you just heard it blaring out from the from the the, the, the speakers, and maybe they did that. I maybe I missed it, but they seemed to imply that you know you could just hear it in the air, which add, just added to the creepiness. Um, but uh, you know, does it? Did it need to be an hour? No, not really. You know, because when it comes down to it. I think you know the whole point of the episode was the the dialogue near the end, uh, where it says, uh, "One man does not sink a sub, and one lousy circumstance does not decide a battle, and one case of sudden fear does not add up to a coward." You've been taking a dirty rap for twenty years. A frightened soldier didn't destroy that ship or kill off that crew. A war did. A set of circumstances did. So. You know, it really boils down to that. I mean, it boils down to, you know, war. I mean, it's it's a hell of a thing. And just the ripple effects and, and you know, the, the, the you survive the war, but you don't really, you know. And, ugh. and again, we, you, as we know, you know, the, you know, we know what Serlene went through and what he saw and, you know, so, I mean, this is just a little bit of a window into that world. I mean, I, this is one of the, the topics that he liked to, to cover, you know, the effects of war. Um, and uh, But overall, again, you know, I've probably seen this episode. I saw, I've seen this episode more than I have uh, in his image. Uh, and, again, you know, this is, this is one of my favorites. Like I said, does it go a little long? Eh, you know, yeah, but... At least the at least the mystery, at least it's kind of creepy. The sound keeps you engaged. Um, like I said, it could have been perfectly been a little twenty two minute episode had the you know not miss out anything. But um, I don't think it's necessarily overly padded. So, but yeah, thirty fathom grave again. You know, it's it's one of the uh, I'd say maybe top four for me of episode, uh, of season four. Um, there's a couple more coming in that, that I think will beat it, but who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll reevaluate my rankings. So anyway, well, again, thanks again, uh, for the opportunity to speak and looking forward to, uh, episode three of season four. Talk to you then. Bye. Rod Serling, creator of the Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. To get your feedback on the show, send a clip of no more than five minutes to tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. If you want to support the podcast, then please go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast for some extra content. Or join the conversation over on FlickChat on the FlickChat app by going to flick.group slash twilightzone. So that's enough from us. Let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, a marvelously exciting excursion into a very strange place called Valley of the Shadow. It comes from the probing mind of Mr. Charles Beaumont. And whether you're a science fiction buff, a fantasy lover, or just needful of some escape, this one should fill most of your requirements. I thought you told me my car was going to be repaired. Please sit down. I don't want to sit down. I want to know why nothing's been done to my car, why it's just sitting out there. Primarily because you won't be needing it anymore. Well, no, well, why? Because you are never going to leave Peaceful Valley. Wait a minute. Sure, I think I got this thing figured out. Oh. Well, sure, Peaceful Valley is a town full of lunatics, and you guys had the list. Now, what do you mean I'm not ever going to be able to leave here? 
course, Mr. Redfield, you stumbled upon the best-kept secret in the world. <laughs>